Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Tommy John for sponsoring my show. Tommy John has the most comfortable all day wearable fabrics. And this spring, you can celebrate comfort like a pro. You can get 20% off your first order right now at tommyjohn.com slash gold. The Dow Jones capped off a winning week with a near 300-point rise on Friday to finish the week at a new all-time record high. The Dow Jones 33,800 spot 60, the actual high on the day 33,810.87, so just off the high of the day on the close. In fact, all of the averages were up on the day, most were up on the week. The Dow up almost 2% on the week. S&P 500 also set a new record on Friday, and that index rose 2.7% for the week. NASDAQ Composite not up quite as much on the day, nor did it set a record, but it was up 3.1% on the week. The laggard being the Russell 2000 finished positive on the day, but it actually declined just under one half of 1% for the week. So again, the stocks that are most closely tied to the U.S. economy, those are the ones that are having problems. It's the multinationals, the bigger stocks that derive earnings internationally. Those are the stocks that are getting most of the benefit from the inflationary policies being pursued by the Federal Reserve. The dollar index fell on the week. You know, a lot of people were expecting the dollar to continue to rise. It finished last week at 92 spot 93, and it dropped not quite a full uh, basis point, but we went down to 92.18. It didn't drop a full point, but it did fall to 92 spot 18, so barely holding on to that 92 handle. Yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury actually slipped a bit on the week. They closed last week at one spot 679. They closed this week 
at one spot six six six. So the triple six, if you think that represents some type of uh, warning of uh, some type of catastrophe to come on the thirty year, the decline was much smaller. In fact, the yields were almost flat on the week. We went from two spot three four to two spot three three nine. So basically unchanged. So that. Uh, yield, the spread between the 10s and the 30s did widen a little bit on the week. Gold and silver prices also managed to gain on the week. Nothing huge. Gold was up about 13 bucks, closed at 17.44. Silver gained about 23 cents or so on the week to settle about 25 and a quarter. And on Friday, gold was down by about 11 bucks, but it was well off the lows. It was down over $20. The low was put in slightly after the release of the March producer price index. Now, of course, a lot of people would have expected the price of gold to rise based on this huge increase that we got in March producer prices. In fact, we had to wait a long time because there was a delay in the number. It was supposed to come out at 8.30 Eastern time. I think it was at least 15 or 20 minutes late. I'm not sure, but it certainly was a shocking number to most people. The estimates for March producer prices was for a gain of 0.5%, and that would have followed the 0.5% gain from February. Well, instead, we ended up with a full 1% increase in producer prices on the month. That's just a gain from February to March, 1%, twice what analysts had estimated. Now, this is the second biggest gain in one month for the PPI since September of 2009. Now, apparently, that's when the government revamped the series, so probably rigged it so that it would understate uh, the increase in producer prices. But since they rejiggered it back in September of 2009, this is the second highest gain. Now, the first highest gain, that happened in January of this year. That was 1.3%. So two of the biggest monthly increases in producer prices since September 2009 have happened in the first quarter of 2021. In fact, if you annualize this quarter, if you take January, February, and March, those three months, that quarter, producer prices were up 2.825% on the quarter. So if you annualize that, multiply it by four, that's 11.3%. So if this continues for another three quarters, we will have a rise of 11.3% in producer prices year over year when you go to the end of 2021. Now, I don't know if that's actually going to happen. In fact, it actually could be more. How do we know that this quarter's rise isn't going to be exceeded by rises in subsequent quarters? Because the Federal Reserve is still claiming that it's all transitory, that none of this matters, that we could look beyond this to some type of big normalization because all of this is simply the result of the economy reopening, right? And the comparisons that we have between Q1 of 2021, when the economy is opening up, and Q1 of 2020, when it was shutting down. Although the big impact of the shutdown is probably in Q2. Uh, so I think the increase 
on a year-over-year basis will be much bigger in Q2 than it was in Q1. And I'm going to get to that in a moment, but we'll see what happens with the month-over-month numbers. But as far as I'm concerned, all of this is wishful thinking when it comes to inflation being transitory, because I think it's anything but. And you can't simply ignore all of the money printing. To claim that all this is simply the reaction to COVID, it's really the reaction to the monetary stimulus that we got as a result of COVID. And I said this from the beginning, that the supply shocks as a result of people not working, that was going to cause prices to go up. But the real big instigator of the spike was going to be all the money that was being printed. Instead of decreasing the money that we had, along with the reduction in production, we did the opposite. We printed more money as we were producing more goods. So we have a perfect storm for surging prices. And we're just seeing the beginning of this now in the producer prices. Of course, it's going to bleed into the consumer prices, but this is just the beginning. But let's also look at the year over year increase in producer prices. So now the increase from March 2021 from March 2020 is 4.2%. Now this is the biggest year over year increase in about nine and a half years. You have to go back to September 2011 to see a year-over-year gain in producer prices this large. And of course, if you remember, that's when gold had made its first record high back in 2011. It had gotten up to around 1,900. I mean, we've since taken out that high, but we are below that level now, even though we're looking backward at producer price increases that are just as high as they were then. But I think the difference is back then in 2011, we had reached a peak in consumer price increases. I don't think we're even close to a peak now. So I think we have a long way to go when it comes to these increases. And so it's very different than the situation was in 2011. So rather than gold being at a high, I think gold is just building a base before it moves up to much higher highs. Now, the initial reaction, as I said, to the release of the March PPI was a sharp decline in gold and silver prices. Now, again, this may seem somewhat counterintuitive, but this is what's been going on uh, for quite some time. There is always a negative reaction in the gold market to hotter than expected inflation data. Now, that doesn't seem to make any sense logically because after all, gold is an inflation hedge. So when you get evidence of more inflation, That should be bullish for gold. That should cause investors to buy gold. Except I've explained on this podcast many, many times, and I'll continue to reiterate this point, is that investors or traders are looking past these hotter than expected inflation numbers to the tighter monetary policy that they are anticipating will be required to rein inflation in and prevent it from becoming a bigger threat. So in other words, higher inflation causes the markets to anticipate Fed rate hikes and a tapering of its asset purchase program that is considered to be bearish for gold. 
So while higher inflation should be bullish for gold, tighter monetary policy to successfully fight off that inflation is what's bearish for gold. And you have to remember, markets always try to look ahead. They always try to discount what's going to happen in the future, not just what's happening right now. Now, of course, a lot of people, particularly in the crypto community, are jumping to a lot of false conclusions. When they see these big inflation numbers and they see gold going down, they're like, aha, see, this proves that gold is no longer an inflation hedge. It's because people are buying Bitcoin instead of gold. We did not see any type of sell-off in Bitcoin the way we saw a sell-off in gold. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast here on a Saturday morning, Bitcoin is now back above the 60,000 level. I mean, it's not much higher, about 60,200 or so, but it is higher than 60,000. So Bitcoin continues to trade relatively near its highs, although it very easily could be putting in a top here, but it is not seeing the type of pressure that you get on gold when you get these inflation numbers. So people are thinking, aha, the reason gold is going down is because people are buying Bitcoin as an inflation hedge instead of gold, and that's why gold's going down. But that's got nothing to do with it. The reason traders aren't buying gold as an inflation hedge is because they don't think there's any inflation that needs to be hedged because they believe the Fed is going to prevent inflation from becoming a problem. After all, that is what Powell said. Yes, he said he's going to wait to see the problem materialize. He's going to wait for the whites of inflation's eyes before firing their ammunition, but they're going to fire. They're going to do what it takes to put this genie, inflation genie, back in the bottle the minute they realize that it's out, right? And everybody just assumes that this is something that A, the Fed will do, or that B, the Fed can do. But they're actually wrong on both counts. Inflation is not going to be brought under control by the Fed. The Fed isn't even going to try because even if it tried, it couldn't succeed, but that's why it's not going to try. So I keep saying there is going to be no inflation fight. The Fed is not going to step into the ring. Inflation is going to win by default. Now, at some point, the markets are going to start reacting to higher than expected inflation data by buying gold. And it all depends on when the markets call the Fed's bluff in that they realize that the Fed is not going to fight inflation or they wait until the Fed doesn't fight it. Maybe the markets are never going to be smart enough to figure out that the Fed is bluffing until they show their cards, which would mean we have a protracted increase in prices without the Fed doing anything. Now, of course, as we see these numbers, the way we've seen these last couple of months, the Fed can continue to say it's transitory. The question is, how much slack will the markets give the Fed in this whole transitory narrative? I guess one quarter is transitory. But what if this persists for the entire year? What if we get something like a 10% increase in prices for 2021? Will the Fed be able to get away with claiming that that's transitory? Now, I think even if we do get such a high number, that is exactly what the Fed is going to say. I believe no matter how high these numbers get, the Fed is going to continue to claim that they're transitory. In fact, they may initially claim that it's evidence that their policy is working, that it's a success, that we should celebrate this victory over deflation. So they're going to try to spin this as a positive. The question is, when will the markets realize 
that they have an inflation problem and that they need a hedge. And when investors do want to hedge against inflation, they're not going to buy Bitcoin. They are going to buy gold. They are going to buy silver. The fact that they're buying gold and silver now has absolutely nothing to do with an inflation hedge. It all has to do with the dynamics of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is marching to the beat of its own drum. It is in a bubble. It's got nothing to do with inflation. Yes, inflation is part of the narrative. This is why we're buying Bitcoin, because it's going to be the new gold. It's going to be the new inflation hedge. But nobody who is buying Bitcoin today is just doing it as an inflation hedge. They're doing it because they think the price of Bitcoin is going to skyrocket and they think they're going to get rich. Look, I just had a conversation the other day with my son, Spencer, who wanted to buy a economic course or something that Tom Wood is giving online. And Tom was having a sale that was going to end at midnight. And I think it was like a 50% off. The course was 250 bucks. And my son, Spencer, really wanted to take the course. And, and so the first thing he wanted to do is know if I could loan him the $250. I'm like, why? Why do I have to loan you $250? You got this huge stash of Bitcoin. Uh, why don't you just sell some of your Bitcoin uh, and, and pay for this course? I mean, don't ask me to pay for it for you or loan you the money. You got plenty of Bitcoin. And he's like, no, there's no way I'm selling any of my Bitcoin, even this small quantity uh, to pay for this course. And then I think he said he was going to try to borrow the money someplace else because every single penny he has is in Bitcoin and he refuses to sell any Bitcoin to buy anything, to pay for anything. Now, why is that? Because he's just convinced that it's going to go to a million or whatever it is. And so he doesn't want to get rid of anything. In fact, he keeps counting you know, how much Bitcoin he has and once he gets to a certain level, I don't think he ever wants it to go down, right? He, he's constantly trying to get more and more Bitcoin. And so he never wants to spend any because that would be a step backwards as far as he's concerned. He's just trying to stack his sats, even though there's nothing to stack. And so he doesn't want to diminish his stack, not even by uh, one Satoshi uh, or whatever, how many it would take uh, to pay for this Tom Wood course. So he's trying to figure out how to get some money, even though he's got all this Bitcoin. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are probably in the same situation as my son. They just are holding on to these things. And the last thing they would want to do is give one of them up. Now, at some point, that's all going to change. But maybe one of the reasons that a lot of people aren't having to sell any is because, you know, they're getting all this stimulus money from the government and uh, and therefore they can live on that and continue to hold on uh, to their Bitcoin. In fact, maybe they can take some of their stimulus money and add to Bitcoin. But that is why Bitcoin is going up. It's not about inflation hedges. It's just about nobody wanting to sell and more money coming in because everybody is operating under the same delusion that if they just hold on to these Bitcoin, they're going to be rich. Uh, well, eventually, if you hold on to your Bitcoin long enough, you're not going to be rich. You're going to be broke. Oh, and by the way, you know, my son Spencer's uh, affection for Bitcoin is certainly getting him a lot of followers on Twitter. You know, he's almost at 60,000 followers now, 59.5 thousand Twitter followers. And in fact, most of his tweets now are related to Bitcoin. A lot of them are just criticizing me. He's one of my biggest critics now. Whenever I say something negative about Bitcoin, I mean, one of the first people to reply to me now is, is my son. So he's, you know, he's one of my biggest trolls. I wish he would get back to, though, some of his more insightful uh, tweets 
about uh, economics and the markets because that's where he really shines. You know, when he starts tweeting about Bitcoin, of course, he's yeah, going off into a crazy land. By the way, my followers are also on the rise. I am almost at 450,000 Twitter followers. As I am recording the podcast, I'm looking at 449,000 200 followers. So maybe uh, by next week, I will be over 450,000. Of course, I need to get up to half a million. That's like my current goal. So I'm about 50,000 followers away. So if you're not following me right now, if you're listening to my podcast, but you're not following me on Twitter, start following me. Also, uh, Instagram, Facebook, subscribe to my YouTube channel. In fact, my Twitter followers just recently passed my YouTube subscribers. At one point, my YouTube subscribers had a huge lead on my Twitter followers, but they have been closing the gap. And right now, my YouTube subscribers are 446,105 as I'm recording this. So uh, about 3,000 more people now following me on Twitter than subscribing to my YouTube channel. So again, if you're on Twitter, follow me and you're not a subscriber to my YouTube channel, then subscribe there because I definitely want to get both of those to half a million. And of course, once I hit half a million, then my goal is going to be a million, right? You're never satisfied. Once you hit one milestone, then you want to shoot for another. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember that question that was posed to Bill Clinton. I think it may have been during one of the presidential debates, but the question was boxers or briefs. There was a young lady that wanted to know whether the presidential hopeful wore boxers or briefs. Well, when it comes to me, the answer is briefs, but it's not just any briefs. It's Tommy John's briefs. In fact, I'm wearing a pair of Tommy John's right now as I'm doing the Peter Schiff podcast. And I've been wearing Tommy John's for years. I didn't just start wearing them because they wanted to sponsor the show. I was wearing them long before 
I became a sponsor. And the reason I started wearing them is because my wife ordered a few pairs for me because I think she saw a commercial. And as soon as I tried them on, I was hooked. That's why Tommy John doesn't just have customers. They have fanatics and you can count me among them. I mean, I think they're very comfortable, but one of the most ingenious aspects is the fly. And, you know, you take it for granted. Like all of my life, I've been wearing underwear with a vertical fly. Why didn't somebody come up with a horizontal fly? I mean, it's actually brilliant in its simplicity, but it works. You can mosey on up to the urinal with a lot of confidence when you got a pair of Tommy Johns. In fact, what I used to do, I used to have pull down the flap. You know, those flies were so difficult to use. Now I get a lot of use out of that fly because it's quick release and it's very easy. So this spring, you can celebrate comfort and lounging like a pro with Tommy John's. All Tommy John's items are guaranteed to fit perfectly with comfy, non-pilling, micro-modal fabric, which means no lint balls or fuzz, and luxuriously soft, fit-blended fabric with four-way stretch. Plus, you're always covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guaranteed. For years, I've been telling people where to store their gold, Now I'm telling you the best place to store your family jewels. You can get 20% off on your first order right now at tommyjohn.com slash gold. That's 20% off loungewear and underwear at tommyjohn.com slash gold. That's tommyjohn.com slash gold. See their website for details. But I want to circle back though and continue to talk about prices going up because it's not just producer prices in the U.S., that are jumping. Take a look at what happened to producer prices in China. Now, this is a February number, so it's a month earlier than the numbers we just got for March. But there, there was a 4.4% rise year over year in producer prices in China. And the gain for the month of February alone was 1.7%. So a much bigger jump uh, than the 1% that we just reported for March or even the the 1.3% that we had in January. But why is producer price increases in China so important for the United States? Well, we import a record amount of stuff from China. You know, our trade deficit with China is at an all-time record high. We lost the trade war that Trump started with China. And as a result, we are now more dependent than ever on Chinese imports. And the cost of producing those imports is going up. Now, don't you think the Chinese are going to pass on these costs to their American consumers? Of course. Why wouldn't they? But not only is the cost of producing stuff in China going up, the cost of shipping that stuff once you produce it from China to the U.S. is soaring because you've got this huge influx of ships coming into the United States, a glut of ships, and these ships are going back empty uh, so they can get refilled with more stuff. So the shipping costs are soaring. And so all of this ultimately is going to have to be paid for by the American consumer. And in fact, look at what's going on with used car prices. If you look at the average annual increase, and of course, this is according to the CPI, so who knows how accurate it is. It's probably uh, underestimating the gain. But if you go from 1995 to 2019, used prices on average were going up around one and a half to 2% a year, right? Kind of consistent with what the government claims the rate of inflation is. One and a half to 2%, well, you pretty much saw the same thing when it came to used cars. 
Well, look at what happened in March. Month over month, used car prices surged by 5.9% on the month. And now if you look at the year over year increase in the cost of used cars, it's a 26.3% increase. Now, the Fed just assumes that all this is transitory, right? Oh, it's because of the chip shortage, right? They can't manufacture as many new cars because there's a shortage of chips. And so people are buying used cars. Look, whenever you print too much money, by definition, there's always a shortage of stuff because when you print all the money, that money printing has no relation to goods production. So it's not so much a shortage of stuff to buy, but a surplus of money to spend. That is the problem. People have all this cash. I mentioned on the podcast I did on Wednesday night that was out on Thursday that I was speaking to a landlord and he was telling me about a tenant who wasn't paying his rent, but has just bought a brand new truck. I mean, we, so this is what's driving a lot of these car purchases. People have all this extra money, not just because the government is printing it and giving it to them, but because they don't have to pay their rent. They don't have to pay their mortgage. They don't have to make the payments on their student loans. So they're buying more cars. They're buying used cars. They're buying new cars or they want to buy new cars. But if the cars aren't there, well, then they just bid up the prices. But you can see all of this evidence of inflation everywhere and the Fed oblivious. And again, all of this talk about inflation is transitory. It reminds me exactly of the talk that we got from the Fed early on in the mortgage crisis when they were saying that subprime is contained. They were just jumping to the conclusion that the data they were seeing on these subprime mortgages going bad was isolated to subprime and that somehow the rest of the mortgage market was going to be immune. They were not going to catch this disease. What did I say? At the time, I said it wasn't a question of uh, infection or spreading. I said the entire mortgage market was sick. It's just that the symptoms were becoming obvious first in the most vulnerable part, which was subprime. But I pointed out that the same problems that were plaguing subprime plagued the entire mortgage market. And as it turned out, I was right and the Fed was wrong. Now the Fed is saying the same thing. Yes, it's a different chairman, but it's the same basic theory that we can ignore this problem, not because it's contained, but because it's transitory. But what the Fed is ignoring is all of the monetary policy that is producing this increase in inflation. And how does the Fed know for sure that what they're seeing is just a transitory blip? How do they know it's not the beginning of a new trend? They don't. And in fact, all of the data would suggest that that's exactly what it is. Just like all the data suggested that we had a mortgage problem, not just a subprime problem, but the Fed either was oblivious to that or they deliberately were blind to it. And again, I've talked about the interview that I heard, I think it was on uh, Yahoo Finance or uh, Motley Fool or one of these, when they interviewed Bernanke and they actually played him some clips of some of the things that he said back in 05 and 06, specifically about subprime being transitory and it not being a threat to the economy. And basically said, hey, you know, how do you feel now listening to what you were saying, knowing what happened? And that's when Bernanke made the admission of saying that, well, I couldn't actually speak honestly because I was a member of the administration. And so I kind of had to toe the administration's line there and I couldn't really say what I wanted. 
which basically was an admission by Bernanke that he lied when he told the nation that there was nothing to worry about and that subprime was contained. He did that because he believed he was a member of the Bush administration. So much for the idea that the Fed is independent when you have a former Fed chairman admitting that he lied in order to help push a narrative that the Bush administration wanted the country to believe that everything was great and there's nothing to worry about. Now, I don't know why that didn't produce more outrage, that admission. And the question is, was Bernanke lying then or is he lying now, right? Is he just trying to save face because he doesn't want to look like a complete fool and say, well, yeah, I guess I was wrong. He's now saying, well, I wasn't wrong. I just wasn't being honest. But personally, I think that's worse. I think being a liar is even worse than being incompetent, although I guess somebody could debate me on that. But the point is, nobody made a big deal about that admission. But I think the same thing is probably happening now. Either the Fed knows that we have a huge inflation problem on its hands and is lying about it, or it's completely clueless and and doesn't realize it. But either way, we've got this huge problem. And you can't deny it by looking at these numbers. But again, one of the things that the Fed wants to hang its hat on is they keep looking back at the last 10 or 20 years and say, hey, look, we printed all this money. We had QE. We had 0% rates before. And look, we didn't have any inflation. And so we can do this forever. And we're not going to have any inflation. And again, you can't assume just because the inflationary policies of the past didn't result in bigger spikes in consumer prices, that we can turn up the heat and we can have even more inflationary policies in the present and that these policies won't have any effect on consumer prices either. That is a completely ridiculous and asinine assumption to make. And I think ultimately this is going to go down as the Fed's biggest blunder, much more so than the mistake in its bad read on subprime problems being contained, the idea that inflation was transitory is going to be an even bigger mistake and an even bigger policy failure because by the time the Fed is forced to admit that they were wrong and inflation wasn't transitory, they will have waited too long to do anything about it. Now, I have been talking not just about inflation, but economic stagnation or stagflation. And even though everybody is focusing on these big increases in GDP, I'm pointing out that these numbers reflect inflation, not economic growth. And you can see more proof of that in the continuing uh, new claims for unemployment benefits, which continue to clock in at levels that exceed the highest claims levels of the deepest part of the Great Recession of 2008-2009. So on Thursday, we got the weekly claims the expectation was for a decline. We got 719,000 first-time claims last week, and people thought, okay, it's going to drop to 680. Well, number one, we upwardly revised the prior week to 728,000 claims, and then instead of declining to 680, we jumped all the way up to 744,000 claims for unemployment benefits. So again, all these people continue to lose their jobs and file unemployment claims, even as we're pretending that we have this economic boom. And another problem, too, is look at the JOLTS numbers that came out earlier in the week, right? We have almost a record number of job openings. In fact, the January number that was originally reported as 6.917 million, 
that was revised up to almost 7.1 million. And the consensus was for 6.85 million openings for February. And instead, we're at 7,367,000 job openings. This is near a record. I don't think it's an all-time record, but it's pretty close to the highest level. And one of the reasons for that is that a lot of people just don't want to work. We have over 100 million Americans who are currently not in the labor force. But of those 100 million, only 6.85 million actually want jobs. You have a record 94 million Americans who don't have jobs and don't want them. Thank you very much. I'd rather not work. Why is this? Well, because we've made it so lucrative for people not to work. Not only are the unemployment benefits extended, but the federal government gives you a $300 a week supplement. Many people are being paid more not to work than to return to work. Well, if you're going to pay people not to work, they're going to take you up on your offer. And in fact, as I said many times on this podcast, even if you get a little bit less money not working than working, most people would still choose not to work. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Take a vacation, get paid, work your ass off at a job you don't like. And then even worse, commute to and from the job. You don't get paid to commute. There's all sorts of -of out-of-pocket costs that you have as a worker that you can't deduct on your income taxes. You don't get paid for that time, your commuting time, the time it takes to get ready to go to work, right? Especially some of the women who have to do their hair, have to do their makeup, right? I mean, it takes a long time to get ready for work. Nobody pays you for that. And by the way, you know, you can't deduct, you know, your your cosmetics or your dresses or whatever you're wearing. You know, none of that is all your clothes you got to pay for. So when you don't have to go to work, you save a lot of money. That savings is valuable. And of course, you get leisure. You get to spend more time with your family, more time uh, you know, with your wife or your husband or your kids. You get to play golf or go to the beach or ride your bike or work out or do whatever you want to do or just hang out and watch Netflix and order stuff on Amazon with your stimulus money. So employers are finding it very difficult to compete with that. How are you going to compete with a job that has all these benefits so you don't have to do any work? Obviously, what is going to have to happen, as long as the government is providing these lucrative monetary incentives not to work, if businesses are going to want to hire people, they're going to have to raise wages, right? Wages are going to have to go up. It's the only way you can entice people out of the unemployment. You got to give them a much better deal. And it's going to happen. And of course, what is going to happen as businesses are forced to pay workers a lot more money to compete with government unemployment benefits, well, they're going to have to pass on those costs to their consumers through higher prices. They're just going to eat it. They're not just going to lose all their profits because they're going to hand them over to their workers. No, they're going to have to maintain profitability to stay in business. And the only way they're going to do that is by raising prices. So you have this double whammy on inflation because you have goods prices going up, right? All our import prices are surging, energy prices, all kinds of stuff. And at the same time, you have all this pressure on wages, even though you have massive unemployment. And a lot of times the Fed might think, well, you know, with all this unemployment, you would expect, you know, wages not to rise because employers have a lot of workers to choose from. That's if you assume that the unemployed workers want jobs. But when the unemployed workers 
don't want jobs. Having all these unemployed workers is not going to depress wages. It's actually going to help push wages up because you force employers to raise wages in order to encourage people who don't want to work to get a job. I mean, normally you have to work, right? If you want to eat, you want to pay the rent, you need to get a job. Well, according to the government, you don't need a job anymore if you want money because the government's going to give you the money even if you don't have a job. And so this army of unemployed workers, they're not there ready to pounce on any job. They are turning down jobs because the pay isn't high enough. And so wages are going to have to go up despite all this unemployment. So you've got, you know, wages, you've got imports. I mean, everything is flashing inflation, 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 and the markets are still oblivious. They're not buying gold because they think the Fed can do the impossible. They think that the Fed could put out this fire. Uh, it is impossible. It is going to burn unchecked because there's nothing the Fed going to do. That's why I think they're denying it because they know they can't do anything about it. But eventually they look completely ridiculous, you know, like a captain of a ship kind of reassuring everybody that the ship is seaworthy and there's nothing to worry about. Yet he's already standing, you know, on the deck and he's, you know, up to his chin in water telling everybody not to worry that the ship is seaworthy. At some point, you got to realize that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and you got to jump off that ship. And the way you jump off the inflation ship is you buy gold, you buy silver, you get out of dollars, you get into foreign assets. And that's exactly what people are going to do. I'm just trying to encourage people to do it sooner rather than later, because the sooner you do it, the more of your wealth you're going to be able to preserve, because the longer you wait to get rid of your dollars, the less those dollars will be worth. And the fewer ounces of gold and silver you can buy, the fewer shares of foreign stocks you'll be able to afford. Of course, another problem for people is not just higher prices or higher wages, depending on your perspective, right? If you're paying the wages, uh, that's a problem. And of course, all consumers pay wages of the workers who work for the companies where they're buying stuff, right? So we're all paying these wages. Uh, but look at taxes going up. Take a look at what just happened in New York. New York just uh, uh, proposed, and it's obviously going to get signed, a new tax hike that is going to make New York the highest tax in the country, particularly New York City, not not all of New York State. They want to raise the top rate in New York to 10.9%. Now, albeit you got to have $25 million a year income before you hit the 10.9% bracket. So not that many New Yorkers are earning more than $25 million a year, but there are plenty of them, uh, especially living in New York City. So they're going to get hit with a 10.9% rate. New York City on its own has a 3.9% rate. And the federal rate right now is 37%, plus you get a 2.9% Obamacare rate. So after this tax increase passes, the top marginal rate for anybody dumb enough to still live in New York City who earns this type of money, the tax rate will be 54.7%. And of course, this is before the Biden tax hike. Biden is proposing raising the top rate from 37 to 39.6. So if you add that in, that would bring the tax rate in New York City to 57.3%. So why anybody would want to pay almost 60% of their income in income tax. And of course, those aren't the only taxes you pay. With the 40% you have left, right, you still have sales taxes, property taxes. So the government isn't finished taxing you uh, when they take the income tax. No, no, they're just getting started. They tax all this other stuff. But, you know, another important thing that people have to consider, and it may not be part of this tax hike, 
but I bet it's going to be in the next tax hike. And it's probably going to happen before the end of the Biden term because they already talked about this. They floated the trial balloon. They just haven't actually uh, come up with the, the real balloon yet. But I believe that they are going to eliminate the cap on the payroll tax, the 12.5% uh, Social Security tax, just the way they eliminated the cap on the Medicare tax. At one point, the Medicare tax only applied to the first, I don't know what it was at the time, 70, 80,000 a year, whatever it was of income. But then they made it unlimited. They did that before Obama. I can't remember when, but Obama uh, came in with the Obama tax where they applied that 3.9% tax to capital gains and, and other income. Uh, prior to that, it only applied to earned income. But at one point there was a cap and then they eliminated the cap. Well, I think they're going to eliminate the cap again for the a payroll tax. And one of the reasons is because the social security system is imploding right now because so many people are not working because the government is paying so many people not to work. Those people are also not paying into the social security system, but you have more and more people as the baby boom retires drawing benefits from social security. And so there's a huge hole there between what the government collects and what they pay out. How are they going to fill that hole? Well, one way they're going to try is by increasing the payroll tax. But the way they're going to do that is not necessarily increasing the payroll tax uh, on the lower income people, but they're going to make the current rate apply to the upper income people. I mean, that's just going to be the first step. Then eventually they're just going to raise the rates on everybody. But the first thing they'll do is they'll apply it to all the income. So if we get the 30... 9.6% top federal rate imposed. And if we make the 12.5% payroll tax apply to all your income, then the top rate in New York City will be 69.8%. So call it 70% income tax. I mean, will the last uh, millionaire in New York City turn off the lights before they leave who is going to want to stay in a city where you have to pay 70% of your income in tax? You're left with 30%. I mean, when the government is taking 70% of what they earn, the government is making more than twice as much as you are. You're making 30%. They're making 70%. I mean, who's working for who? I mean, you're already a slave to the government when the government is taking 54.7%. If the government makes more than you do from your business, the government owns your business and they own you. Well, if it's 70%, well, then, you know, you basically flip serfdom uh, on its head. Remember, the medieval serf got to keep 75% and the Lord only got 25%. Well, in America, if you're getting up to 70% federal tax uh, and then you throw in some other taxes, they've actually flipped it. And modern day Americans have to give to the Lord, their Lord, the amount that they used to be able to keep. Instead of keeping 75% and turning over 25%, they keep 25 and they give 75. So people are not going to stand for this and the government is not going to collect that revenue. And I know a lot of people want to say, but Peter, you know, once upon a time in America, we did have a 70% rate. Hell, we even had a 90% rate. So why can't we go back to a 70% rate again? There is a big difference between those high rates that we had back then in the 50s, for example, and the rates we have today. Because back then, there was only one kind of income. There was massive deductions. So people's effective tax rates were much lower than those marginal rates. Hardly any taxes were actually collected 
at those high marginal rates because the code left lots of room to avoid those taxes. And, and so that's the only reason that we were able to survive with those taxes was because people didn't pay them. But even though a lot of people want to talk about all the deductions and all the loopholes, they are there, but they pale in comparison to what used to be there. So if rates got to 70% again with the current tax code, and of course they're even talking about closing even more of the loopholes, but the effective tax rate would be much higher than it was in the past. And since it would be much harder to avoid these confiscatory taxes, they would do far more damage to the economy now than they did back then. Of course, one of the reasons the government continues to demand more tax revenue, though I don't know why, they could just print it, right? They're all MMTers now. But look at Biden administration proposing a $715 billion budget for the Defense Department for fiscal 22, that's a 1.5% increase over the prior year. Now, granted, adjusted for inflation, I guess that's a slight cut, but why are we spending more money on the military, especially when we're broke, and especially if you think that the Democrats have some type of priority for a domestic agenda, right, that they prefer butter to guns, why are we spending more money on guns as we're spending more money on butter, right? It shows you it doesn't really matter, you know, how you arrange the deck chairs on this Titanic, whether you have a Republican or a Democrat at the helm, nobody's cutting up military spending. Yes, Donald Trump, apparently would have increased the budget for fiscal 2020 to 722 billion so slightly more than the 715 billion that Biden wants to spend but that's it that's the whole difference between the two administrations right the republicans who are supposedly in bed with the defense department they're the warmongers they wanted to spend 722 billion but the democrats who don't want to waste money on defense right they care more about a social spending, they only want to spend $715 billion. That's it? $7 billion? Like 1%? That's the only difference between these two extremes? That shows you there's no difference at all. They're just playing us for fools. One more point, too, that I wanted to make uh, that everybody seems to be ignoring as everybody is celebrating the reopening of the economy is that beneath the surface, some of the economies uh, that reopened are reclosing, right? I live in Puerto Rico, and we just got the news on Friday that because of a spike in COVID cases, I'm not even sure how big the spike is, we're going back to a partial lockdown. The schools are now closed. So now all the kids have to go back to homeschooling. It, they'd only been going to school for not even a month, right? The schools hadn't been open for a month, and now they're closed down again. Meanwhile, the curfew is back. Nobody can be out of their house after 10 p.m., Island-wide curfew, uh, capacity in the restaurants back down to 50% capacity. The restaurants have to be closed by 9 o'clock. Not sure all the various rules again for the other establishments. But again, the economy is locking back down. And of course, one of the reasons that Puerto Rico is so confident that they can get away with this is because they're getting showered by government stimulus money. If the government wasn't handing out all this money, uh, then governors uh, would think twice about ordering uh, these closures, but they know there's no financial consequences because Washington and the Fed are going to provide them with the money. And yeah, the teachers love this. I mean, now they're back on vacation. They were like, oh my God, I've been going to work for a whole month. I have to wake up early. I got to drive to class. And now, oh, you know, don't tell me that the teachers unions didn't have some pressure because after all, 
All the teachers have been vaccinated. The teachers were among the first vaccinated. In fact, that's why they reopened the schools, right? Was because they vaccinated all the teachers. And it's not really a threat to the kids. And a lot of the people have vaccines. So if this is the case, if we all have vaccines, why are we shutting down the schools again? I mean, what are they worried about? I mean, clearly this is a political payoff. You've got these labor unions, these teachers that vote for the politicians, and now the politicians are returning the favor by giving them extended paid vacations. And this is probably going to happen all over the country, not just here in Puerto Rico. But I want to finish up the podcast just talking a little bit about that 60 Minutes hit piece on Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Because, you know, I have some personal experience Uh, with the lack of journalistic integrity at 60 Minutes. And if you haven't seen the interview, you can check it out. But basically, 60 Minutes flat out accused DeSantis of giving a contract to Publix, which is a supermarket chain in Florida, that they handed this contract to DeSantis specifically as a, a payoff, right, for campaign contributions. Like maybe the campaign contributions were in fact a bribe to get... Governor DeSantis to award Publix this contract. And complete fraud, no real evidence that this is true. Make it all up, right? It's a narrative that they wanted to push. Everybody in the state, including the Democrats, are denying. They have no actual evidence. The only evidence they have is, oh, here are campaign contributions, and oh, they got this contract. But there is nothing that links the two together. I mean, a lot of companies make campaign contributions, right? So it stands to reason that some of those companies could get a government contract. I mean, they got to give the contract to somebody, but there's nothing that specifically ties these two things together, but they pretended that that it did. And in fact, the main narrative that 60 Minutes was trying to show was that the rollout of these vaccines was somehow discriminatory because not as many, I guess, blacks or Hispanics had been vaccinated, probably not Hispanic. I think it was simply African-Americans that they were focusing on. And they were saying, aha, this is a racist discriminatory practice because only the rich white people are getting vaccinated, but these poor people of color, they're not getting their vaccines. And of course, to the extent that blacks are not getting vaccinated in the same percentage as whites has nothing to do with a deliberate attempt on the part of the government to exclude them. Like they're a bunch of racists saying, hey, we got to make sure we vaccinate white people, but hey, let's not let any black people get these vaccinations. I'm not arguing with the fact that maybe not as many blacks as a percentage have chosen to avail themselves of the opportunity to be vaccinated. I mean, they made a point of focusing on one little town where it was a half hour ride on a bus to get to the publics, as if this half-hour bus ride somehow prohibited these people from getting to publics. But I'm sure 60 Minutes found the one black community that had the furthest distance to travel to get to a publics to get their free vaccine. I'm sure most of the African Americans in Florida were probably no more than five or ten minutes away from a Publix, right? But they found this one little town where you had to go a half an hour and they said, aha, you see, this is racist because how can you expect somebody to take a half hour bus ride to get a free vaccine, right? This is disgraceful. Like we should have brought the free vaccines right to their doorsteps so they wouldn't have to be inconvenienced by getting on a bus. I mean, this whole thing is ridiculous, but I know that 60 Minutes has a political agenda. And so they write their stories to validate their agenda. 
regardless of whether or not the facts support it, they will distort the facts. They will selectively edit their broadcasts in order to support their narrative, even if their narrative is false. That is why this is not news in many cases. It is just propaganda masquerading as news, although it's not necessarily propaganda because it's not from the government, but it is a left-wing organization trying to push an agenda while pretending that they're a news organization. They want people to think they're objectively reporting the news, but there's nothing objective about it, and it's not even news because if it's fiction, if they make it up, then it's not news. And again, that is exactly what they did in my case, although it was 60 Minutes Australia, but I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree when it comes to these various 60 Minutes spinoffs in other countries. What was the agenda that 60 Minutes Australia had when they did the hit piece on me? Well, it was obvious. Again, I pointed this out the day after the 60 Minutes piece aired, uh, the age, 60 Minutes, they already had all these stories lined up and ready to go uh, in support of new legislation in Australia to apply anti-money laundering rules more strictly to banks, but also to include other occupations, lawyers and accountants. And the reason that we needed all this new regulation on Australian businesses and professionals was because so many otherwise reputable companies were doing business with Peter Schiff and Euro-Pacific Bank. And Peter Schiff and Euro-Pacific Bank were the biggest money launderers, tax evaders, drug smugglers, whatever, in the world. And the fact that all of these reputable companies and people would do business with such a sketchy, you know, company as mine, right? That was proof that we needed more regulations to prevent good companies in Australia from doing business with bad companies outside of Australia. And I was the bad company. My bank and me were the bad individuals or companies that were being highlighted, even though there was absolutely no proof that there was anything wrong with me or my bank. And maybe they initially thought there might have been something, but they did some type of investigation, as superficial as it was, and they came back with nothing, right? They didn't find any actual evidence of any real wrongdoing. So what did they do? In order to advance their agenda, they just made it up. And so everything they reported was fiction. Now, were there some kernels of truth? Sure, but you have to dig really deep to find them. But then when you take a kernel of truth and you misrepresent it and turn it into a lie, then the fact that you started off with something that might have been truthful, the way you presented it makes the truthful part completely irrelevant to the fact that now you've created a false impression and you've twisted an innocent truth into a lie that makes it appear as if, the subject of your story has actually done something wrong when in fact there's no evidence that it has. And you know, I'm still paying the consequences for this. I came back, this is the first time, because I haven't been traveling a lot uh, internationally. In fact, I haven't traveled internationally at all uh, since January of last year, right? That was the last time I was in Europe, uh, summer of uh, 2020, I was in Europe with my son Spencer and we got back. Oh no, I did take a trip to Canada, uh, in January of 2021. Um, but since then, I pretty much have been stateside. The only place I've really traveled was back and forth between Puerto Rico and Connecticut. And so on Thursday, I flew for the day to Antigua. So I flew out on Thursday and I came back on Friday. And 
Now, no problem getting into Antigua, but on the way back coming from Antigua to Puerto Rico, as I'm clearing customs and I have to give the custom agent my passport, all of a sudden something came up with my name, you know, and he starts asking me questions, you know, how much currency are you traveling with? And I'm like, I don't know. I had like 30 bucks or something. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of cash. Uh, on me. I was only there for the day. And I just, you know, I generally use my credit card when I travel. So I don't travel with a lot of cash. And so I had like 30 bucks, but I was probably sitting there and my, it was holding up my entire party. And fortunately we flew on a private plane and I was a group of, I think five or six of us, but we're all waiting in this small airport for them to clear my customs or holding on to my passport. And I don't know how long it was a half hour, an hour I'm sitting there and they're checking on all sorts of things and they finally decided to let me go. But I had talked to a lawyer about it, wondering, hey, why are they you know, holding my passport? What is the problem here? And I couldn't really get any real information from the customs guy, right? But what the lawyer was telling me is that I'm probably now on this list, right? This watch list of potential uh, money launderers or whatever it is, because of all these articles about my association with your Pacific Bank and how we're doing all this money laundering and helping people evade taxes and helping drug smugglers and organized criminals that now because of that, like I'm on this list. And so every time I'm going to try to come back into the country, uh, I'm going to be scrutinized like this and it's going to be a bigger hassle uh, getting back in. So that's another way that I am paying the price uh, for all the false accusations made without any truth to back them up by 60 Minutes. But because these accusations are out there and you can Google them, well, now the U.S. government, and of course the U.S. government itself has done nothing, right? You've got U.S. Uh, border officers, customs guys, are jumping to the conclusion that I'm a suspicious character based on unsubstantiated allegations by the Australian media. Meanwhile, there's no actual allegations by the United States. I mean, yes, there was that article in the New York Times that piggybacked off of the Australia article, but nothing from the U.S. government. The U.S. government itself has never accused me of doing anything. But now representatives of the U.S. government are, are putting me on this high watch list based exclusively on accusations of a foreign media outlet. But now, you know, now I've got to deal with this. Hopefully it's not going to go on forever. You know, I don't want to lose. I've got this global entry thing uh, that does make it easier to go through customs. Although at the at the small airport, the private airport in Puerto Rico, you don't even get to use a global entry. But if I'm flying, uh, you know, international or something on a commercial flight, yeah, I mean, global entry uh, makes it a lot easier for me to, to get through uh, the customs lines quicker. Hopefully the next time I try to come back, we are going to be in Europe again. I've got plans to be in Switzerland from late June to late July. And so uh, we'll see what happens when I try to get back into the country then. Uh, maybe they'll take my global entry card. I have no idea. Uh, but I really wish I didn't have to deal with all this nonsense. But again, this is what happens in today's day and age where you are guilty until proven innocent, especially when it comes to the government perception. And those perceptions work their way through the entire financial industry, which has to assume right guilt, even though there is no proof of guilt. That is one of the reasons that my bank turns down so many applicants. That is one of the reasons that we shut down so many legitimate accounts because once there's anything that looks suspicious, 
even if it's probably nothing, we have to assume it's something. In order to cover our own butts, we need to shut those accounts or freeze those accounts, which makes it so ironic that my bank has probably one of the most stringent compliance anti-money laundering programs of any bank in the world, yet we were singled out by 60 Minutes for not doing that, specifically so they could advance their own agenda to have additional rules and regulations on Australian businesses, even though those rules and regulations were certainly not warranted based on those organizations' association with me or my bank. 